Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Since joining Fidelity in 2002, portfolio manager Hugo Lavallee has held an impressive track record. For Canadian investors, Hugo manages Fidelity Greater Canada Fund, Canadian Opportunities Fund, and Climate Leadership Fund. Hugo is known for his contrarian investment style, and today he's going to talk about what that means for his three funds and where he's finding opportunities to support these strategies. He'll also explain the difference between a value investor and a contrarian, share his thoughts on this past earnings season, global macro influences, and climate, among other topics. Today's podcast was recorded on December 8, 2022, in front of a live audience during Fidelity's December Focus 2022 event for financial advisors. Hugo will start things off before being joined by host Pat Bolland for a discussion. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So here we are, um, you know, contrarian investing, second recession in, uh, you know, two, three years. It's not fun, lots of long faces. Nobody's enjoying it except for Dan, of course. And, uh, you know, for everybody else, it's a little painful. And, uh, you know, raise your hand if you're tired of, uh, you know, living through historical events, right? Like 9-11, you know, great financial crisis, pandemic, that was a weird one, right? Try to explain to kids what's going on. You have no idea, you think you're gonna die. I remember that evening going in my cellar and I didn't reach for the cheap bottle of wine, that's for sure. So, and now we have, here we are, right? Um, uh, we're going to have a global slowdown. We have a global slowdown. We're going to have a recession. We have a historical rise in rates driven by a historical rise in inflation. And, you know, stocks are way down. And today I just want to run through the tools that I have a little bit as an investor. You know, what tools are in the toolbox after 20 years of working at Fidelity, right? Because I always say that I'm looking for stocks that are out of favor. I'm hoping that situation will we're trying to imagine situations that will improve over two, three years. And time is our friend, right? Time is the friend of us as active managers. There's so much short-termism nowadays in the stock market. People can't tolerate a tough six months, a tough quarter, a tough end of the year. There's a lot of pressure. And I think for me, time is our competitive advantage. We can look at the difficult situation now Think well, we think things will get better over two, three years. We have the benefit of time, we have the luxury of time. How can we make some money? So let's run through some of the tools that I use. And you know, first level, you know, and it works, things that they teach us in school, right? Low price to earnings, high free cash flow yield. And I, I got some examples that have worked over the years for me. And for example, Dollarama during the pandemic, right? Every quarter was squishy. There was always something. One quarter, they couldn't sell 40% of the stores in Ontario. In Quebec, we closed shopping malls during the pandemic. 
right? So there's Dollaramas in shopping malls. They were open. There's about 50 Dollaramas in the province of Quebec in shopping malls. They were open, but traffic was, was, was slow, right? So every quarter it was just not great. There was always risk. Oh, now it's going to be container costs out of China. In the meantime, the P multiple had shrunk to 19 times earnings. 19 times not super cheap, but it's not very expensive for a really high quality business where every time you open a new store, you get 50% cash on cash return. So that was the opportunity. You know, it, well, we knew two things, right? Eventually, the restriction would lift, and we knew that eventually they'd go to higher price points. And that's exactly where we are today. And the P multiple has expanded from 19 times earnings to 27, 28 times earnings. Another example is Couchetard, when there was rumors in the press that they were looking to buy Carrefour. The stock collapsed to, I think, 12, 13 times earnings. People didn't want them to get into the grocery business. There's probably a really good reason why they were looking to do that, but people didn't want to hear it. And you're always dealing with some sort of uncertainty, but you know that things will get better. And buying low, low multiple stocks certainly works. At this point, though, you know, low PE has been really, really good over the last 18 months. And here we are in a bear market. Here we are in a recession. And earnings are going down, right? And often what happens with PE stocks or earnings is as they go down, is as the stocks go down, the stocks, the P multiple expands, right? Stocks get more expensive as they fall. And what happens is if a company is only marginally profitable or has never been profitable, is it worthless? Some of them will be worthless, but not all of them. And there's other tools you can use to value them. A really simple one, and there's some opportunities right now uh, in that, that you only see in bear markets in the recession, price to net cash. Companies, 150 million market cap, $100 million of cash. Enough cash, they won't go bankrupt, you know, protects the downside, especially if the losses are low. It's there for whatever reason. Uh, last product wasn't very good, they've burned some cash. But there's a lot of overcapitalized balance sheet because they raised money in 2021. So that's one tool that I use. Low price to book, works in metals, works sometimes in technology. EV to sales, which works also in technology. Low EV to sales. You got great sales, but for whatever other reason, you're not doing a good job. Maybe you have a high gross margin. That's one tool I really like to use, EV to gross profit. So what's the economic value of the company? Market cap less net cash divided by the gross profit. A lot of companies have 70, a lot of software companies have 75% gross profit, gross, gross margins, but yet they're unprofitable. And they're unprofitable often because of their own will. So you can have another company come in, ties on the costs underneath the gross profit line and make it profitable. And there are some cheap names. You know, once you hit below three times gross profit and really like below two times, there's a real opportunity to cut your costs and have a much better stock price. The other one, EV, they're recurring revenues. Recurring revenues sometimes in software or in industrials, but really in software, are really, really high gross profit margins, really, really high gross profit contribution. And yet, you know, here you are, you're over-investing in sales or, you know, you're too small, but you're public. We know that, for example, for small cap public companies, the cost of being public can be as, as high as 2 3% of sales. So if you go back to being private or somebody else buys you, right away you bring margins up a couple of percentage points. So some of, some of the tools really in software that you can use in moments like this. You know, this is tax loss selling season right now. 
And this is our opportunity to buy a lot of cheap stocks that others are selling. You know, in the bear market, you don't need to outrun the bear. You just need to run faster than the other guy. And as you know, they're forced to liquidate or sell, you can pick some of their cheap names. And this is a great time towards the end of it. You've got about a week left in tax loss selling. And another thing that I use, another tool that I use that's a little bit specific to me, is price to previous peak earnings. So when the earnings collapse in a company, Chipotle five, six years ago, poisoning their customers with their food. Earnings go from $18 a share to 75 cents a share. Stock is, three, is $250, 300 times earnings. What can you anchor to, to look for value? Five below during the pandemic, forced to close all their stores, lose 96% of revenues. What can you anchor? And that's one thing that I'm doing right now. There's a lot of companies, there's a lot of companies in Europe actually, that fit that bill. So. How much profits did you used to make? What was your peak previous profit? What were the conditions at that time? Is there a path over the next two, three, four years to get back there? Some companies have way over earned sometimes and they'll never get back there. That of course happens. But oftentimes that's a good place to start and anchor. And my magic formula is 10 to 15 times that number. And if you can pick a high quality company that you know, it's a brand that we would know. There's no reason to believe that it can get, go back to those earnings in the future. They have the balance sheet to get back there. They have the luxury of time. Things are tough right now. There's a lot of COVID winners that fit that bill, right? Companies that w probably over earn in 2021. And now, you know, it depends. Some high quality, maybe I'm willing to pay 15, 20 times prior peak. Some others, maybe just 10 because I'm afraid that maybe they've overearned. A lot of content companies, some that were hit during COVID because they couldn't collaborate. They needed to be in person and they couldn't be in person. And now the content got delayed. So how do you value those companies? Right at the beginning of COVID, it was great. People were consuming content, but they couldn't develop content. And now there's a content lag. And because of that, now the earnings have collapsed. So European companies, content companies, uh, consumer companies, European companies, they all kind of fit that bill right now of a tool that I use. And not every stock's a buy, of course, but when you go through that mindset, hey, you guys learned in 2019, you know, you're 10 times 2019 earnings. Right now, you're 50 times earnings. Can we get back to 10 times earnings? And can we probably double our capital over three to five years? And if we double our capital over three to five years, you know, we'll beat the market. So those are some of the tools that I wanted to share today that I use in this moment, this exact moment, because here we are, right, in the bear market. Who knows how long it's gonna last? But with tax loss selling, with a lot of competitors being you know, really slammed, there's just some opportunities to pick away at things and look at things a little bit differently. And some people are struggling. Even our young tech analysts internally, I was talking to two of them earlier this week. You know, they're, you know, I gotta, help them anchor to how should we do this now? Because you were looking at, you know, 10 times EV to sales and that's, that, that's broken, forget about that. We gotta anchor to something else. What can we anchor to, to give us a price level that at that price, I will buy the stock. And that's really how I do it. So in my head, there's just a bunch of securities with a bunch of prices that I would buy at. I would buy them at. As, and as the stock gets to those prices, I lean in. And as they break through those prices, we recheck the mat. And if the mat works, we lean in further and further. And that's how eventually when we get out of a recession, the contrarian style works.
So with that, Pat, let's uh, answer some questions. Tafi had a côté de moi, so I'm going to go easy on you. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> For those who didn't understand that, I got my nine-year-old daughter with me, so uh, I knew it, I knew the I knew it'd be a little skinny after Dan, so I want to <laughs> fill some seats. So we're going to Magic Kingdom tomorrow, so it's good. Oh wow! Can I come? <laughs> uh, I'm here. I'm here, folks. I'm still here. <laughs> Can't get rid of me that easy. Okay, you call yourself a contrarian, but when I look at those rules, there's enterprise value, there's price the book, there's all traditional value tools. Are you really a value investor or a growth investor or some other? Yeah, I mean, I'm frankly, I'm sometimes a little bored by the value versus growth debate. You know, what's better? Cats or dogs, you know, cake or ice cream, friends or Seinfeld, you know, that's easy, Seinfeld. But you know, we wanna <laughs> we wanna put everything in a box, right? And for me, the best box I can describe myself is contrarian, right? Looking at opportunities where other investors are disgusted. And sometimes, you know, you use, I'm, I'm an investment omnivore, right? I like, I like a little bit of that, I like a little bit of this. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just important that I know what I'm looking for, my setup. And my favorite setup is a really, really high quality company, which, you know, everybody wants to own, but they've fallen on super hard time. And it's much easier to discuss afterwards than in the moment, right? When your company's poisoning their customers and same-store sales are down 15%, or when the, the stores are shut because of COVID and there's no more revenues and customers walking through the door, or where all the con when the content is all delayed and there's nothing else to consume and you're losing net ads. Like there's all these different opportunities that occur. And um, people can't take pain, you know, as a general comment. Um, you know, and my pain level is pretty high. Dan levels like extremely high. Uh, my level is quite high and I'm very comfortable in what I'm looking for and what I want to do and which setup I'm looking for. And right now there's just opportunities, you know, companies that were consumer exposed to China. You know, there's one name I have in mind that, you know, they had a, they had a plant in Russia you know, the, the asset is worthless now. The stock's down 75%. It's going to take four years to rebuild that capacity in Romania. You know, there's just opportunities all the time. And what we have is the luxury of time. And if we have the luxury of time, we can look at the world just a little bit differently. Because people are always stuck in the moment. And if you're willing to just look at the world a little bit differently, say, hey, you know, I know this really sucks right now. But that's also why the stock price is down so much. Like people sometimes, even the young analysts, like I'd like to buy that pro that stock at this price, and then it goes to that price. Like, okay, cool, let's buy it. Oh no, now it sounds worse. Well, of course it sounds worse. That's why the stock went down, right? And so you just try to draw a line in the sand for some securities. I will buy at this price, hope for better things. And sometimes companies get taken out, right, out of their misery. So, call me whatever you want, Pat, but I'll stick with Contreras. <laughs> uh I was supposed to ask you, what is skewness in the market? Oh, from Steve? Yeah, McMillan, yeah, this morning. Uh, Steve is so much more I don't even know intellectual what that is. than me, yeah. So, um, so there's a, you know, if you want to read it, there's a Bessenbinder uh, study about, you know, stock skewness. And, and really what it means to me is just there's a couple of extraordinary stocks over 10 years, over 20 years, over, it's really rare, but over 30 and 40 years. There's very few of those. 
But if you can have one or two in your portfolio, they make a huge difference to your compounded rate of return. And I think, I think Fidelity is really good at that. Fidelity Canada is really good at that. Well, Fidelity in general is really good at that. So you know, when I joined 20 years ago, you know, Alan Radlow had a ton of Kushtar in his portfolio, right? And that's been, that's actually one of the best stock in the whole world over the last, you know, 30, 30 years. Um, and from then, you know, when Dollarama went public, I still remember that IPO and I totally messed it up because it was 17, 17 and a half times earnings and I thought it was too expensive. And that's been a monstrous stock. And guys like Max Lemire and Darren, you know, they bought that security. Shopify for Mark, you know, even after the huge collapse this year, it's been a huge stock since the IPO and Mark was early on it. For me, it was Constellation Software, which I bought over 10 years ago at $90 a share from the selling VCs. That's another opportunity, by the way, like VCs, they have a limited time span, right? Seven, eight years. And so they had made a lot of money, but we've made a lot of money as well because they were forced sellers. So that was our opportunity. Again, you know, the advantage of time. So when I think about skewness, that's how I think about it, is if you're, you know, for Will Danoff's, like the Apple, the, you know, the, the Facebook until this year, but there's opportunities with a few names to really tilt returns. And you know, sometimes it feels like we're spinning our wheels and we're working every day and we're having a hard time, you know, but we're always looking for the next great one. And I think Fidelity Canada, they can access the CGI and there's a bunch of others I didn't name. I think we're pretty good at that. There's pretty rare that we, we whiff on one. And uh, I think the whole group does a good job. And if we can find one or, the, one or two or three of these winners, as a team, even if we don't buy the same one, that's part of the key to success of Fidelity Canada for our clients. Hmm. One of the metrics you talk about unique to you is that price to previous peak earnings per share. And we've just gone through an earnings season where the tech stocks, for instance, uh, didn't perform very well, and then they laid off. But you, you say that uh, a bunch of people, you say that you'll invest in those if you see a path to getting back to those. Is that the kind of path you want to see? layoffs and a radical change like that? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. I mean, you know, I think Q3 season was a really important earnings season. You know, we've been discussing all year, right? Oh, valuations are down, but we haven't seen earnings reset yet, right? And it finally started happening uh, during Q3 earnings season. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really good first step in our cleansing process of a recession, right? You need those moments. I think it was a really important day on October 13th, right? A really important market signal when we open way down and finish way up. You know, those are kind of the things we need in a bottoming process. Like I'm not saying that was the bottom and I'm not allowed to make predictions, but what I'm saying is those are they're good events, right? And in Q3, we saw companies like Facebook, for example, come out and, and companies will react to the market signal, right? One thing I've been telling the analysts internally is don't get too negative on companies that were losing money. They were losing money because the market was sending them the signal, lose money, grow revenue at all costs. Some companies are business models are hopeless. Some companies are business model were not hopeless. It was their own choice. A lot of software companies make 75% gross mar profit margins. You know, below the line, you should be able to make some money. So the market was telling them grow, 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 forget the rest. Now the market's sending them other signals, right? Mm. We care about profits. We care about operating margin. We care about uh, free cash flow. 
So I think what we're gonna see is we're gonna see the companies pivot and fight back, especially the North American companies. So you're starting to see that, right, during Q3 earnings season. You're seeing this layoffs. You can't have your stock go down, down, down all the time, and everybody's pissed off at working for that company. At some point, the companies are, I think, just like, you know, the market reaction forced a change to the British government. Mm. I think the market's gonna force behavioral change in some of the companies. So we're just trying to get ahead of that a little bit. Um, you know, again, not every stock's a buy. A good ways to anchor is to what profits did you make in the past. But, what, but I think it is positive what we saw in Q3. And you know, now we'll see, right? We're gonna, next year is gonna be tougher. How much pressure is, it is on the top line. But you have to remember that at some point over the next two, three years, we'll live the mirror image of what we lived in Q3, right? So what happened in Q3? They were continuing to invest, invest in OPEX and they saw revenue pressure. So margins collapse, right? Coming out of a recession, what normally happens, it's the opposite. They've cut costs and all of a sudden they see revenue accelerate for the first time and margin expand again. So, you know, I, I believe in margin expansion as a, you know, a style. And uh, you just have to remind yourself in, in these difficult moments, at some point we'll get the opposite. We just need more time. When you started going through your five rules, you kind of tossed out, we're currently in a recession. You're unique, I think, so far today in saying that. Yeah, I think in my household, we encourage our kids to use the real words, you know? I think it's okay. You know, <laughs> you, know you can use words and we can use the R word, you know, we can say recession, you know, I think it's okay. You know, I mean, look, by the time it'll be called, it'll be almost done already, right? So, you know, look, Europe is gonna have a really tricky winter. I don't think there's any surprises there. Haven't the US already have like two negative GDP quarter over quarter growth? Like at some point we'll have unemployment rate tick up again. Who knows, right? But I can tell you as a stock investor, certainly feels like a recession. You saw Q3 earnings where earnings are coming down. So I think it's, it's okay, you know. I was a little late in figuring out in my head, I leaned into risk too early this year. I kind of figured it out in, in June that, you know, things were gonna get really bad. But uh, it's okay. I don't think it's, we don't have to be afraid of using uh, real words, Pat. <laughs> in recent years, we've seen a greater retail participation in stock markets. Does that impact how you invest? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I like to think not. Um, I think sometimes it can push stock prices higher than what you would think, and hopefully you can profit from that. I think for me, what I said earlier in this moment, it's a lot more about tax loss selling, um, other institution tax loss selling. Sometimes funds are forced to close. You always see that in a recession. If you do small caps, in a recession, you always lose competitors. It happened, it happened in 03, happened in 09, happened during COVID. You know, you think you're buying a cheap stock and then it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper on volume because other people are forced sellers. And I think we're lucky at Fidelity you know, we've all, you know, I've been here 20 years, Dan's been here 21, like, we just got a lot of seniority on the team. We feel secure, we can buy securities that other people hate. There's a lot of market participants that haven't been around for, you know, the Great Recession of 2009, and it, those are our opportunities. So I, I think about it less retail, I think about more institutional, sometimes it's index deletion, 
you know, gets kicked out of an index, get kicked out at a TSX, becomes orphan, an orphan stock. I, I love orphan stocks, like stocks that you feel you're the only institutional buyer left, especially in small cap. So one thing I've been leading in a ton is small cap tech. That, that whole like EV to gross profit, price to net cash, it hasn't worked at all yet, but historically it's a style that really works for me. Um, I think it will work eventually, but I'm really, really leaning in and these sub 500 million market cap companies that have overcapitalized balance sheet, that have the luxury of time, and we just gotta wait for a takeout, the economy to get better, or management to figure things out. Uh, another question coming from the app is a little bit ahead of us because we haven't talked about it yet, but can you speak to your process of adding a stock to your climate leadership fund? So you're going to have to explain what it is overall and how green do they have to be and where are you finding opportunities? So let's start with what is the climate leadership fund? Yeah, so climate leadership fund was launched in May of last year. It's $500 million of assets. It's a trend fund, right? It's important to say that. It's, a not, it's not an impact fund. It's a trend fund on decarbonization as a team. So our North Star is the decarbonization of the economy. And that's, so we just put the fidelity process and my contrarian process, which I talked about today, but I add an extra lens, which is a climate lens, which is a decarbonization lens. And so we're on this journey and I've been at Fidelity 20 years and I thought, you know, I'm hoping this is gonna be my, my next 20 years at Fidelity, right? And I think that trend makes a lot of sense. They don't have to be super green, it depends. So we got three buckets. We got the leadership bucket, we got the solution buckets, and we got the reformers bucket. So for the solutions bucket, they have to be green companies, right? They gotta be part of the solution. But one bucket I've been leaning in is leadership. So companies in industries like financials or others that maybe you don't think uh, are necessarily green companies, but they've got an angle, they've got something that they're doing that makes sense. And then on the reformers bucket, sometimes it's a company that had a polluting business model, but the business model is pivoting, or there's a new avenue to them. So one name I've, I spoke in the past, like Denbury, it was an oil and gas company, it's still an oil and gas company, um, but they were doing EOR, enhanced water recovery, using natural occurring carbon. But they had a carbon pipeline, which is tough to build, expensive to build, in one of the most polluting belt of the United States. Um, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, East Texas. So now what they're gonna pivot to, instead of using natural occurring carbon, they're gonna use industrial carbon, which is a lot more powerful. Pump that into their carbon pipeline and do carbon sequestration. So that's a good idea of a reformer, right? Mm -hmm. I fought hard, they want to exclude oil and gas from that fund. I said, no, because there's opportunities sometimes in other businesses that make sense. They have to really, really make sense. One thing I've been doing, in uh, climate leadership is instead of trying to predict the next big thing, look for good companies that already have a good business model, high ROC, but they're gonna have that extra tailwind of, of climate, of decarbonization. So for example, like the, rail, the railways, right? So initially when we launched a fund, I never thought I'd put you know, CP rail in the fund. And the more we learned about it, the more I think it makes sense because railways, I think, are gonna take huge amount of share versus trucking. And we think it's gonna be a revenue tailwind for the next 20 years, because it's 70% less carbon intensive than trucking. Mm. So it's an opportunity to decarbonize our supply chain, but it's already a good business, but we just think there's gonna be just a little bit of extra revenue 
And they also have a decarbonization path if they want to over the next 10 or 20 years to hydrogen locomotive. But the point is they're winning now and they're gonna to continue to win versus alternatives. So that's how I think about the fund. Then why are you so defensive on calling it an impact fund? Because everything you just described is impact. No, I don't think so. I don't think buying, depends how you define impact, but for me, impact is putting our capital to work into something that, you know, for example, you know, you give me your $20 million, right? Small right. change for Just you. half of what I got. Right, exactly. And we say, okay, cool, we're gonna build a hydrogen plant, right? A green hydrogen plant, that's impact. If we buy 100 shares of CP, that's not impact, right? We're not changing the cost of capital. So I think we just got to be really careful with the, the team, the, the words that we use. So I call it a trend fund, right? Mm. It's a fund on that decarbonization trend. And obviously, I'm hoping we'll have a couple of good stories on financing over the next 20 years. But it's, uh, it's not an impact fund. It's a trend fund. Uh, okay, what are you doing in commodities, uh, especially in light of you know geopolitical developments in Russia, Ukraine, and so on and so forth? Nice little pop in commodities and energies, but where you where do you stand on that? Obviously not in the climate leadership fund, but in the rest. Yeah, I mean, I've been leaning in more on metals personally. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. They're a little bit easier for me to wrap my head around on what's what's good about base materials is when things are tough, you can value them on price to book. And so that's what I've been using this year. So, you know, copper was, copper, copper stocks were really, really high in February. They weren't so hot, you know, this summer. And now all of a sudden they're hot again somewhat because of China reopening and other things. And you can, you can really get lost in those narratives. Mm. Um, so we got a good keen analyst, Claire Fleming, and she just sets prices. You know, what price would you buy first quantum? What price would you buy Ivanhoe Mining? And as the stock gets, and we have, we have bands, I have bands in my head, like First Quantum. And, uh, and that's what's allowed me to survive this year, right? I, I've totally messed it up. I didn't want to bet on a second recession in three years. And, but I, we, I've been able to win all these small wars on focusing on pricing and, and, and somewhat value, right? So metals I'm interested in, copper I'm interested in, a little bit less now after the rebound. I think, you know, Dan and I have done a decent job trading gold stocks. I mean, they're so they're so volatile. It's it's not, and, but there's opportunities there to to get ahead. You know, small victories to get ahead. Mm. So that's I've uh, in keen opportunities. I totally missed the nat gas trade. Totally missed it. And they're really big stocks in the index. And yet somehow I'm still able to somewhat be ahead because we've won some small victories elsewhere. So so we'll see. But I think. Copper at some point will get really, really interested. There's an opportunity, what I like about mining more than oil and gas, there's just less of that stuff lying around. And it's tougher to bring a mine to, um, to you know, production. Right. So if you go upside down on supply demand, it can be really, really powerful on pricing because you don't have as much elastic supply response. So I tend to focus a little bit more on mining than on gas. Are there sectors that you are looking at right now beyond the uh, mining and oil and gas? On commodities? No, or in general. Mine in general. Oh, all sectors. I mean, all the time, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, look, what am I looking for? What am I leaning in? And I think I've you know, explained it, but COVID winners, awful stocks this year, right? Maybe there are some opportunities there. Content companies couldn't develop their content in 2020, 2021. 
are there some opportunities there? Companies that had assets or were exposed to Russia and China, could things get better there? European companies, when things have been really, really difficult, right? Mm. Remember, we're Canadian investors, right? We look at numbers in Canadian dollar. Canadian dollar's been a little tough versus US dollar, but it's been really good versus the pound or the euro. Mm. So is there opportunities to, to buy stocks there? Um, consumer discretionary industrials. There's a lot of in opportunities in industrials. I'm probably heavier in industrials I've ever been. A lot of companies in industrials, some of them had a hard time during COVID. Supply chain challenges, right? Labor challenges. So as the world's slowing down, for, for them, things are actually getting a little bit better. So Boyd Group is a name that's in my top 10 in key opportunities, I think in Greater Canada as well. Yeah, yeah, well, it's funny you say that because I didn't hear finances anywhere in there. And then I'm looking at your Greater Canada Fund has the Brookfield Asset Management, Royal Bank of Canada, TD Bank. Yeah, I know we like to tr track the top 10, but sometimes it just fits into a whole fund, right? So I'm not too excited about Canadian banks. I own two of them and they're right there in the top 10, but I don't own the others, right? So it's big on the way to mine in Greater Canada. And I don't know, I just think as Canadians, we just got to pass this moment of higher rates, right? Things have been a little bit difficult. Um, rates are going up. A lot of people, the tide's coming out. A lot of people have a lot of debt. And um, I don't know, I'm not, everything, the one, the one area I'm still quite negative on is everything that's Canadian cyclical, Canadian specific. I really try to scrub my funds, especially Canadian opportunities of Canadian cyclicals. During COVID, we did really well with Canadian Tire, Sleep Country, Aritzia, and other names. At this point, I'm just, I'm just not that interested. You know, as a nation, unfortunately, we have a lot riding on residential construction. We got a lot of wealth effect. We have a lot of people with debt. And I think we just, you know, now we have higher rates and we just need more time to see how bad it'll get. And then maybe we can re-engage. And I put the banks in the same bucket. Hmm. Uh, as I go through the names, one name pops out across all your top tens. Brookfield, Asset Management and the Greater Canada Canadian Opportunities is Renewable Partners. And yet in Climate Leadership, you have Asset Management. Is it, do you like something about Brookfield's uh, management? So what I like, so one tool I use is... Um, and it talks to the skewness of the, the stock market returns. So one thing I've been using this year is, what are the stocks that I've missed over the last decade, right? Mm -hmm. So I was a new PM in 08, 09. And what stocks did I really, really messed up that were great stocks in the Canadian stock market? Boyd Group was a great stock. Their railroads were amazing stocks. Brookfield Asset Management, certainly partly because of low, lower rates, they were also a great stock. And that's one tool that I use sometimes, you know, what's, what's gonna be a great business over the next five years, 10 years? Sometimes you can anchor, oftentimes you can anchor to what was a great business over the last 10 years? Mm. Was it, what was a great stock before? And maybe sometimes the returns won't be as extraordinary, but I don't know, sometimes I try to predict the future and I get so messed up, like, I feel that, hey, you know, one tool I can use is what was already a great stock. And I've been using this recession to re-engage with 
where our roads like, like CP with Boyd Group, with Ben, as a way to, hey, those were great stocks before and I wasn't there. Mm. Um, I, already, I, own, I keep owning Couchard, Metro, CGI, stocks that I've owned before that were great stocks. Dollarama, well, I need, I need to own these other ones, and that's a tool that I use. So are you using those skewness stocks as kind of like a base to work yeah, off? Exactly. Right. You finally understand what I do. But, I do yeah. kind of, yeah. But it's true, right? Like, where, what can you anchor to in Canada? And I think it's just, there's a few extraordinary companies, and sometimes it just happened to me like three weeks ago, right? You got this great idea, they're gonna crush the quarter, and then something happens, like management does a deal that for, you don't understand, you don't know what's going on, you don't agree with the deal. You know, there's just, sometimes like stuff happens. So how do you minimize those negative exogenous shocks, right? Mm. And sometimes going with the familiar, like Couchard and Metro, where you know what they're gonna do, they're very consistent, you know they're, they're not gonna negatively surprise you, they're gonna do a good job. They wake up, they think of shareholders, they wanna get bigger and richer. It just makes our job a little bit easier. And sometimes you get lost and confused and the rest, and sometimes just anchoring to what, was, what did previously work and can it keep working is a good way to start. It kind of flies in face of your whole contrarian argument. Well, it depends when you buy them, right? Oh. So, um, you know, the rails, I was looking at them for like 10 years, like I can't believe, I remember I finished selling all my rails in 2011. And for nine years, just look at these stocks, almost every year beat the market. And I'm like, next recession, I'm not gonna miss them. And then COVID happened. So it gave you an opportunity to re-engage, right? So that's what I like to do is you track good companies but you don't want to buy them, you know, right now there's no contrarian reason. So you wait for, you wait for a moment. Hmm. And, you know, to these really, you know, historical moments, you know, here we are, war in Europe and another recession, and it just gives you opportunities. The, the, the silver lining, the opportunity that exists is to rebuy good companies that you've, you've missed, that I've messed up before. You know, COVID for me, like Dollarama is, is one stock that's absolutely dr uh, driven me crazy. I, I, I screwed up the IPO, I didn't own it. It was a monstrous stock. And I'm like, I'm just looking for a reason to re-engage. And then during COVID, you know, it became the biggest stock I think in my funds for Canadian Ops in Greater Canada because every quarter was bad. It was just never great. It wasn't terrible, it was just never great. It was always a reason that things were squishy, same store sales weren't great, P multiple shrunk. So you gotta be patient. Slide below, I looked at it for years. And then during COVID, it's like, cool, you know, let's put a big fat donut on your revenue line. You've lost 96% of your revenue. Do you have the balance sheet to survive this moment? What are you on 2022 earnings? This is April 2020. My analyst in London, our best guess, it's 10 times 2022 earnings. Say no more, like keep it simple. When things get really tough, I think one of the things I'm, I'm pretty good at, keep it really, really simple. Because otherwise you're gonna get confused and lost on a million details. It's 10 times earnings. I think at the time they had like $700 million of liquidity. Um, it was like eight months of liquidity. Could be better, but it was eight months of liquidity if they didn't fire anybody. It's like, okay, the company's gonna fight to survive. You know, let's 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 pick away at this. 
And let's keep it simple. When things get really, really tough, I tell the analysts all the time, stop trying to confuse me with like a million things. Focus on what's our potential return over three to five years. Do they have the pound sheet to survive? What's our P multiple two, three years out? It's 10 times earnings, they're gonna survive. Or it's 0.3 times book, they're gonna survive. Hmm. What else is there to talk about? Sounds like value investing to me, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay, let's get on to climate because I do. I know you've read. I read things like Lincoln Highway and kind of entertaining books. You read the Inflation Reduction Act. What's that got to do with climate change? So you know, you need if you never needed a proof that you need a, a war for the Americans to get get together on you know uh, climate and. The, you know, with the, that's what the IRA, IRA was, Inflation Reduction Act, right? And I'm probably the only one in the room that read it. Um, so it was just, you know, tools. That's why everything's intertwined now. Energy security, decarbonization, fighting inflation. It's all intertwined now, post-war. And the Inflation Reduction Act is what Americans are doing for Americans. Credit for uh, batteries made in the United States. 30% credit for solar. Uh, BTC, Blenter's tax credit extension, uh, SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, there's a $1.50 credit for that now. Uh, so just all tools that they'll be using EV credits to fight inflation, reduce, you know, I'll finish with that. There's not enough freedom-loving, energy-producing countries in the world like Canada and the United States. And we, you know, for other countries, they need alternative solutions. And IRA was just an opportunity for the US to kind of turbo boost what they can do to be a little bit less reliable on rogue states and dictators. So it's good for uh, climate stocks. Obviously the stocks we, we rated day one and we just gotta figure out which opportunities there is, you know, stock by stock. Uh, we only have two minutes left. Uh, but you've always said to me that you are a really good manager coming out of recessions. Is that something you said to me? I know you said it to me. I said, but I, well, I, I hopefully I don't mess up, mess up this time. But yeah, historically, uh, when I was an analyst, 03 was a good year for me. As a PM, 09 was a good year for me. 2020 was a good year as a PM. So I'm hoping to go four out of four and really not mess that up. <laughs> That'd be really sad. So uh, that's what I'm working really hard on. You know, trying to find opportunities, lead in at the cheap stocks and, and thank people for their patience. And I know what's on the other side. We just need to get there. And um, I try to manage the funds. So in my head, my funds are probably 75 to 80% all in. There's still some room to go. Mm. And I'm keeping some firepower. And if things get more difficult, we'll lean in more. And hopefully, eventually, that leads us to a better outcome. One thing I'm good at is differentiate personal from work. Mm. You know, if we're all going to fry in a nuclear war, we shouldn't be here. We should be enjoying our margaritas outside. <laughs> and I know I'm standing in the way. So, you know, at some point, you got to differentiate. And when things are tough, say, OK, cool. Um, you know, maybe I'm scared as a individual, but it's time to lean in and take some risk. And I, I, think, I just think it comes to me a little bit more naturally. Exactly. Hugo, thanks very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, 
And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.